welcome back to GEMcast. I'm joined today by Mary Mulcair, who is trained in emergency medicine and also fellowship trained in geriatric emergency medicine, one of the few and proud. So welcome, Mary. Glad to have you here today. Thank you. Mary is working as an attending now at New York Presbyterian and Cornell Medical School in New York City, and she has become an expert in urinary tract infections and indwelling urinary catheters in the elderly. You may think that this topic is easy and cut and dry and straightforward about how you diagnose a UTI, but it turns out it isn't really. And if you treat a non-existent UTI, you can potentially do harm because of all the side effects of medications. And then again, if you don't treat somebody who has a true UTI, you can also do harm because this can lead to sepsis. The other issue is indwelling urinary catheters. Sometimes they're absolutely required, but other times it's less clear, and these have their own risks and benefits, particularly in frail elderly adults, UTIs, and also indwelling urinary catheters, or IUCs, can lead to delirium and deconditioning. Let's start first with some definitions. We'll be talking about pyuria, asymptomatic bacteriuria, and symptomatic UTIs. First of all, can you define those for us? Sure. Pyuria is white blood cells in the urine, very simply. Asymptomatic bacteria is the presence of bacteria in urine with quantitatively greater than 100,000 CFUs without any clinical signs suggestive of a UTI. In our older adult population, this is really difficult to tell because many of them do not present with the same symptoms that our younger folks do. And then there's symptomatic UTI, which is, as it sounds, it's symptoms plus pyuria plus urine culture identifying the pathogen. So really, to definitively diagnose the UTI, you need a urine culture. Correct. Correct. That's going to be the mainstay of your diagnosis. And how common a problem is this among older adults? So in the older adult population at large, the incidence of UTI is about 10% for women over the age of 65 and 30% for women over the age of 85 based on self-report in a 12-month period. It's actually the second most commonly diagnosed infection in the acute hospital setting with pneumonia being first and bacteremia being third. Um, A little perspective for all the ED physicians listening, uh, UTIs actually account for 5% of all ED visits in older adults. So that's a fairly, you know, sizable chunk. These numbers jump extraordinarily when discussing residents of long-term care facilities. Beyond the risk factors of having had a previous UTI, these patients are more commonly cognitively impaired, they have issues with regular voiding, they have suboptimal self-hygiene, and they're at risk for needing catheterization. Needless to say, a UTI is especially a challenging diagnosis in this population when they're not walking in the door telling you exactly you know, what they think they have, what their symptoms are, and giving you a slam dunk diagnosis. And as we've mentioned on other podcasts, there's a large heterogeneity when we're talking about older adults. We typically mean 65 and over, but you may have a perfectly functional, high-functioning 70-year-old who can come in and tell you, oh, I have burning when I urinate in frequency and urgency, and oh, look, there's white cells and bacteria in the urine. Looks like a slam dunk UTI. But then, as you mentioned, it becomes a lot more complicated in patients who are nursing home bound, who have baseline dementia, or who are incontinent, or who have indwelling catheters, which we'll get to later. So how do we diagnose a UTI? There can be a lot of confusion regarding urinalysis and diagnosing UTIs. It's it's not a straightforward you know, question, as we would all hope, and a straightforward answer, shall I say, as we would all hope it be. Um, sterile pyuria does exist, and leukestrase and nitrates 
are not as helpful as we'd like them to be. You know, if your urine analysis is negative for leukes and nitrates, then it's probably not a UTI. If it's positive, you need to keep thinking. It's not a slam dunk yes. Um, urine cultures are the most important, as we just mentioned. Um, however, they shouldn't be sent unless there's really concern for a UTI clinically. There are a significant percentage of older adults with colonized urine leading to this asymptomatic bacteria. Um, the number of people with that sort of starts low in earlier age and increases with age. Gets to the point where, you know, men over 80, approximately 10% of the population has asymptomatic bacteria. And in women over the age of 80, the number is about 20%. Both of those numbers double in patients from skilled nursing facilities or long-term care facilities. Studies have shown that after treating with antibiotics, about 25% of these folks actually persist with bacteria, hence comes the term colonization. Now, as we'll talk about a little bit more, you know, indwelling catheters are a different beast in and of themselves. Um, three to there's a 3 to 10% per day risk of developing an infection with a catheter being present. And in patients that have chronic indwelling urinary catheters, the risk goes up to 100% if you can actually believe that. You know, nothing in medicine is truly 100% except potentially getting a UTI if you have a chronic <laughs> indwelling urinary catheter. Um, the prevalence of pyuria with, bacter with bacteria also increases with age and is close to 90% in men and women over the age of 80, which makes things even more complicated. These numbers kind of blew my mind the first time I, I saw them, that you can have sterile pyuria. So you can have white cells in the urine, but there's no actual infection. I, I assume that's just from some sort of inflammatory baseline response. But then you can also have bacteria, ba bacteriuria, excuse me, and bacteria in the urine, but it's just a colonization that lives there, but doesn't actually cause an infection, doesn't actually cause, uh, you know, develop into pylo or sepsis or the other things that we worry about. So are there any criteria that can help us diagnose this so that we can be more objective and also more uniform across the board? There are criteria out there for treating UTIs in older adults, um, specifically ones by McGear and Lerb and colleagues. Um, however, those criteria are rarely followed. Um, the criteria really ground themselves in having acute dysuria and fever or worsening urologic symptoms, i.e. incontinence, you know, worsening smell, frequency, urgency, pain, um, cost over tebral angle, tenderness, hematuria. Um, I think I really think also mental status should be included on that list, and it is sometimes, sometimes not, depending on you know which data you look at. The criteria that really matters in diagnosing a UTI and making us more objective and uniform is using a microbiological diagnosis, i.e., using your urine culture. That's really where the money lies in getting this correct. That can be a challenge in the emergency department setting because obviously we don't get the urine culture results back for another day or so. So while they're there in the ED for those hours, we have to often decide what to do with the patient and whether to treat them or not uh, before we have that information. Now, one option, if they look well and you don't think they're developing sepsis, is to wait and see what the culture shows. And for example, we have a uh, follow-up nurse who will look at all the cultures 
that result after a patient is discharged and then come and talk to the physician about calling in a medication if needed. But not all places may have that kind of resource. What are some of the risks of treating asymptomatic bacteria or pyuria or this colonization? Say we get a, UT, a UA, which is often ordered from triage on almost all older adult patients, and there's a little bit of bacteria or a little bit of white cells, and we don't really know is this a UTI or just colonization, so we say, okay, let's just throw some antibiotics. What are the risks associated with that? The overuse of antibiotics is leading to more virulent strains of multidrug-resistant pathogens. Hence, it makes it so important to make an educated decision about whether or not you want to treat. Using prior resistance patterns is really helpful. If you do happen to have an old urine culture in your system from the patient prior, very helpful. If you can call a primary care doc and see what a prior urine culture showed, really helpful. Um, we're likewise fortunate to have a nurse practitioner who can follow up on those urine cultures where you're not quite sure and then call in prescriptions after the fact. But again, not many people have that luxury. Um, also, there are many medications that have drug-drug interactions with other medications such as fluoroquinolones and warfarin, for example. Or there are many antibiotics that may cause acute renal failure such as Bactrim. There are other adverse drug reactions. The list can go on and on and on. So if we do think there's a UTI, what should we treat with? Well, you start with understanding the most common pathogen, which is E. coli. And again, if a prior culture exists with sensitivities, you use that to guide your choice. If there's no urine culture available, it really depends on the institution. Most academic institutions have an epidemiology group who follow local resistant patterns and produce antibiotograms, which make suggestions. You know, here in New York City on the Upper East Side, we currently use cephalosporins as one of our go-to agents. Um, our sister institutions on the other side of the city actually have a different set of go-to agents that they're using based on their own resistance patterns, you know, not more than a mile away from us. So it really does vary pretty dramatically. That's interesting. So are you typically sending them home with ceftonir or one of those type of oral agents? Depends on what their other comorbidities are, but we're usually starting with mm -hmm. Keflex at this point. Oh, really? With cephalexin. Okay. Mm -hmm. So where I am down here in North Carolina, we have very high resistance rates to ciprofloxacin, so I pretty much never use that. We tend to try not to use other fluoroquinolones like levofloxacin because of the side effects and interactions. We have so many people on Coumadin. I try to avoid Bactrim because of that risk of acute renal failure. Um, we use a lot of nitrofurantoin or macrobid, which has very few side effects or drug-drug interactions. And it's interesting, nitrofurantoin has a kind of a complex past where it had been on the beers list, which is a list of potentially uh, high-risk medications for older adults, but that was because of the concern that it does not accumulate in the urine at a low creatinine clearance. That data was very shaky. And so in the latest beers list, it's been adjusted so that you can use it as long as your creatinine clearance is over 30. If it's under 30, then it just doesn't concentrate well enough. So I like to use that a lot in older patients, um, as long as it's not pylo or obviously sepsis, something like that. Also for Women who have uncomplicated UTIs, I'll use the single dose of three grams of phosphomycin orally. Now, this has pluses and minuses. It doesn't have much resistance currently in the bacterial pathogens that are causing UTIs because it hadn't been used a lot. It's actually an old drug, but then it hasn't really been used much in the last decade, so there's not much resistance. But the downside is that your hospital 
culture and sensitivity patterns don't typically screen for phosphomycin, so you can't be certain that it works. But it does cover most of the urinary pathogens, and it's a nice one-time dose. So for people who may have difficulty obtaining their medications as an outpatient or have difficulty with compliance or understanding or transportation or whatever it is, this is a nice one-time dose for a simple, uncomplicated UTI in women. So it sounds like we can definitely help this problem by prescribing wisely. How else can we impact the growing concerns surrounding urinary tract infections in the elderly? This is a great question. Given most of us are practicing in acute care settings as emergency physicians, we can really work to prevent UTIs in the first place. Catheter-associated urinary infections, or CAUTIs, that's C-A-U-T-I, are common, especially in our older adult populations. These catheter-associated UTIs account for 11 to 40% of hospital-acquired bacteremic episodes. The risk of developing a CAUTI is directly related to the amount of time the indwelling catheter is in place, with the risk of infection increasing by approximately 5% per 24-hour period. As a side note, sort of of administrative importance, as of October 1, 2008, CMS no longer reimburses hospitals for CAUTIs. It's one of 11 hospital-acquired conditions for which this applies, hence why the administration staff is so focused on this in many places. Mm-hmm. Placement of indwelling urinary catheters is actually one of the most frequently performed procedures in the hospital, and it's often initiated in the emergency department. It's a decision that's infrequently reversed once the patient's transferred to the floor. In fact, there was a small study done in 2000 that showed 28% of the time the inpatient provider actually does not know that a patient under their care has an indwelling catheter in place, which is you know, a little scary, but we can all see that being realistic depending on what hospitals you've worked in. Much of the conundrum around whether or not to place an indwelling urinary catheter is related to the anticipated risk-benefit ratio when considering the individual patient scenario. This is not in every patient, you know, fits in a nice clean box all the time. Um, There are known risks for patient safety and deleterious outcomes, which include infection, delirium, falls, discomfort for the patient, potential for traumatic removal, especially in your delirious patients or agitated patients, and also having a urinary catheter promotes immobility in these patients. How pertinent is this to the ED? How often are we the ones who are initiating that decision to place a catheter? The short answer is this is very pertinent to our practice. Nearly half of all hospitalizations originate in the emergency department, and 8 to 23%, depending on which study you've read, of ED patients who are admitted receive a urinary catheter. The highest rate within that population is in older adults. Um, One study actually cited 91% of indwelling urinary catheters that were placed in the first 24 hours of admission came from the emergency department. So that's fairly significant. Recent literature suggests that as many as 64% of these catheters that are placed in ED are done so sort of, quote, inappropriately. Thus, having an intervention focused on geriatric patients in the ED, which in the ED in, in most all of our hospitals is the gateway, it's the front door, it's the point of entry to our hospital system. Having a protocol in this location can have a really significant impact on the amount of catheters that are placed and therefore the subsequent CAUTI rate that are coming through. Just a short bit ago, we conducted a bunch of focus groups at our institutions, um, including physicians, nurses, residents, various folks at all different levels of training. And the nurse participants actually agreed with physicians and advanced practice providers that the nursing staff does frequently place, quote, convenience catheters, despite the acknowledged risks associated. The ED is obviously a challenging place where nurses are balancing high patient volumes and limited resources and having a limited time per patient, which often makes the most practical choice, i.e. placing a urinary catheter, common. 
based on the focus group input, you know, our nurses were actually eager to have alternatives and hoped that a clinical protocol would actually help drive a cultural change. From what you're saying, it sounds like intrauterine catheters are placed pretty frequently in the ED. Sometimes they're necessary. Sometimes it may be because it's easier for the patient to have a catheter than to, for example, if they're incontinent, frequently clean them or walk them or take them in a wheelchair because that can be challenging on the patient and on staff. And once they are placed in the ED, they're rarely removed pretty quickly on the floor. And the clinical decision regarding placement and removal of IUCs can vary pretty wildly by healthcare provider and also by institution. Sounds like from that data, institutions have pretty widely different rates of catheter placement. And I know, for example, at our facility a few years ago, we implemented a protocol to try to reduce the number of intrauterine catheters and their associated complications and the number went down pretty significantly. Part of that was just education of the nurses and staff and physicians, but also putting some barriers to placement of the catheters. You had to indicate what your reason was, and it had to be one of the approved reasons. Let's say someone wanted to go about implementing a protocol as you have for reducing intrauterine catheter placement. What are some important components that would need to be included in a protocol like this? Sort of similar to what your institution did, our protocol focused on the different stages of decision-making when considering an indwelling urinary catheter in older adults in the emergency department specifically, because that's where we're working. The parts of the decision-making process that were included was the diagnosis-based recommendation for placement, i.e. whether or not a catheter should be placed based on specifically what the patient was presenting with. We included critical actions that needed to take place when placing a catheter. We included alternate modes of urine collection, i.e. using a commode with a hat, using a urinal, using straight cath, using a Texas catheter, um, all sorts of different options. Then we also included a piece regarding teamwork and assuring agreement between different members of the team for whether or not catheter was actually needed and the catheter should be placed. And then key, at the end of the protocol, we included reassessment of an indwelling catheter for removal, whether it be a shift change, patient transfer, or other time within the patient care rubric. But reassessing whether that catheter is still needed was really important. Yeah, that's a great piece. So what are the diagnoses for which an IUC is definitely indicated? So an indwelling urinary catheter is absolutely indicated in the following cases. It includes critical illness requiring hourly INO monitoring for acutely ventilated patients, for patients with acute pulmonary edema or a CHF exacerbation requiring non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, for patients with burns greater than 20% of their total body surface area, for major trauma as per the ATLS protocol, for patients with certain orthopedic injuries, those specifically requiring immobilization, such as pelvic fractures or spine fractures. It actually is required for hip fractures, and it's also required for cord injuries, including cord compression and then acute urinary retention. What are some common diagnoses for which you don't need an intrauterine catheter? There are many scenarios where risks outweigh the benefit, um, and thus the indwelling urinary catheter should not be placed. The caveat to that is obviously if one of the more emergent conditions exists on top of what we're going to talk about. So the specific conditions alone for which we should not be using an IUC include delirium, dementia, incontinence, being bedbound, 
measuring post-void residual, for which we should be using an ultrasound, a bladder scanner, or if absolutely necessary, a straight cath. We should not be using an indwelling urinary catheter to obtain a urine sample, simply because a patient has a urinary tract infection, is intoxicated with alcohol or other substance, or has morbid obesity. And likewise, we shouldn't be placing an IUC if it's refused by the patient or their healthcare proxy. And more than anything, similar to what we talked about at the beginning, IUCs should not be placed for the convenience of care by staff or simply by the request of the family to make things easier in terms of the patient getting to and from the bathroom. And then there are all these sort of in-between categories. There are things for which you probably need an indwelling urinary catheter, but you can try other things first, such as lower extremity injuries requiring immobilization in the acute period, um, or if an older adult comes in with maceration of the perineal or the sacral skin in the setting of incontinence, those are hard to treat without an indwelling catheter, but you know, please feel free to try. Um, also, if a patient needs it for palliative care purposes or comfort care measures in certain scenarios, then it's permissible to use a catheter. There are also some things for which you'd really prefer not to use an indwelling catheter, but sometimes you can't avoid it. And that includes accurate ins and outs monitoring at intervals greater than one hour, um, where a commode with a measurement hat, urinal, or a Texas catheter, for example, might might be utilized, um, preferably if the patient's able to do that. A lot of times for CHF patients who do not require non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, um, an alternate method can be used to adequately track their clinical status and avoid the risks of a catheter placement. Uh, You were saying do not reflexively place urinary catheters in all CHF exacerbations. This does represent a change in practice for many providers, and the evidence shows that patients do better clinically without an indwelling catheter because they're more mobile, they're they're getting up out of bed, they're moving, um, and then they also have decreased rates of caudies. And then finally, we should avoid placing indwelling urinary catheters in the preoperative period unless transportation to the operating room is imminent or as otherwise might be indicated by the patient's condition. So most hospitals across the country have in-hospital initiatives to try and discontinue indwelling urinary catheters on the back end, sort of in the post-operative period, as soon as possible to prevent infection. Obviously, that factors towards hospital metrics and towards the surgical team metrics. But we should also be doing our part to not place these catheters sooner than is absolutely necessary before they're transferred. Um, that will it'll reduce the rates of infection, continue them with normal bladder function, and you know if the patient is ambulatory at baseline, can help them continue to be ambulatory until it's time for them to head to the operating room. So with the experience of having done this at your hospital, do you have any recommendations for listeners who may be interested in developing a protocol for their ED? This is a great quality improvement idea or project to decrease the rates of caudies and improve patient care for older adults. Certainly, and I think this is a very straightforward project and something that both hospital administrations as well as as well as patients truly benefit from. A few points of recommendation. I think first, finding a nursing champion in order to get buy-in from your nursing colleagues is super important, as well as getting having a champion among your ED technicians or your patient support staff, whatever it is in your institution, but specifically those people who are responsible for the general maintenance of care of patients. Having them as part of your team is instrumental. And then remind your group about the alternate modes of urine collection that are present in your emergency department. 
And while you're doing that, likewise, make sure that your ED is actually stocked with those alternate modes of collection, right? We found here when we talked about it, we found that we actually only had one commode per area of each part of our ED, which is for about 50 patients, give or take. And that was just not going to be feasible to use when we were recommending that they shouldn't be using indwelling catheters. So make sure that your ED is stocked appropriately so that people can actually functionally do what it is that you're asking them to do. But also consider advocating very strongly for the reassessment of the indwelling catheters at shift change and transfer to the floor and including parameters for removal of the catheter at your sign-outs. Thus, you're not limiting the protocol to just the initial placement of the catheter, but you're continuing it through the patient's entire stay with you in the emergency room. And as we all know, things constantly are changing in the ED and people's clinical status is constantly changing, and you may have opportunities to remove these catheters sooner than you might have anticipated. Ultimately, with these protocols, it's really important just to mold it to something that will work at your institution, and that's based on your own institutional culture. I mean, I would put in a little plug. You know, I didn't plan to base my career on urinary catheters, but it's actually worked out <laughs> quite, quite nicely. And there's a lot of research to be done about how to best treat older adults with urinary tract infections and how to prevent caudies and how, how to best tackle this issue. So if anybody has any interest, I think this is an area that is really ripe for future research. I think there are a lot of blank spots on listeners' CVs that could be filled with urinary catheter champion. I think that needs to happen. Mary, we've talked about diagnosing UTIs, a lot of the confounding factors such as the high rates of colonization, sterile pyuria, asymptomatic bacteriuria, the risks of treating a non-UTI, and then some things about the best medications to choose, and then how to avoid caudies. And just to finish up, a few things that may help or may not help in preventing future infections when we see patients who are coming in with recurrent infections, what may help? Well, unfortunately, there's not all that much that can help. Good hygiene is one portion. If people are incontinent and using Depends or other pads, those can be sources of infection. Studies have been pretty equivocal about cranberry juice. I know some people swear by it, but overall, a Cochrane review from 2012 found no statistically significant benefit to cranberry juice. So unfortunately, I hope nobody has stock in uh, ocean spray um, and was hoping that that would pan out because it doesn't seem like it really helps. For older women who have recurrent UTIs, one thing that could help and is an easy, easy, low-risk fix is topical estrogen to the perineal area, which can help with folks who have vaginal atrophy just restore some of the normal conditions to reduce UTIs. And then also mobility can help prevent future infections. Mary, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your urinary catheter championship information with us, and hopefully this will be useful to folks in different hospitals who may be looking for a way that they can improve care for older adults. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you. 